Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. I am continuing my quest to help educate women about breast cancer risk, preventative lifestyle interventions, genetics, and hormone therapy. About 90% of the women that I've had the honor to work with have never had a conversation with their OBGYN about hormone replacement therapy or BHRT bioidenticals. And about 50% of them have never had their sex hormone lab panels taken. Ladies, you cannot rely on your doctors to educate you because they themselves may not be fully educated on the current research surrounding breast cancer risk, menopause, and hormone therapy. Unless, of course, you're like me and you see a functional medicine doctor. As we age, our hormone levels drop. Ancestrally, we didn't live this long. Now we are. When our hormone levels drop, our risk for certain chronic illnesses increases exponentially, such as breast cancer cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and Alzheimer's. Women my mother's age were going through menopause in the 1990s when the Women's Health Initiative study was going on. I've done a lot of podcasts on that study, um, so I'm not going to deep dive into that here, but the trial was stopped early, the study was flawed, and the false findings scared the bejesus out of women and doctors, leaving a multi-decades-long fear cast over women's health, hormones, and breast cancer risk. Today, my guest is Dr. Varid Stearns, Professor of Oncology, Breast Cancer Research Chair in Oncology, and Assistant Director for Faculty Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Stearns' long-term research goal is to improve current therapies by individualizing strategies for the treatment and prevention of breast cancer. Her main research includes the utilization of biomarkers to predict response to standard regimens used to treat and prevent breast cancer and to introduce new interventions. Dr. Stearns and colleagues were the first to evaluate the role of genetic variants in candidate genes such as CYP2D6 and tamoxifen metabolism, safety, and efficacy. The work has been extended to evaluate the role of genetic variants in aromatase modifying or in aromatase inhibitor associated outcomes. She has also conducted clinical investigations of epigenetic modifying agents across the breast cancer continuum. Having demonstrated that methylation markers predict breast cancer risk, she is evaluating whether natural compounds can reverse these modifications. Dr. Stearns has received numerous grants and awards to fund her innovative research. She was a recipient of a clinical research training grant from the American Cancer Society, an inaugural recipient of the American Society of Clinical Oncology's Advanced Clinical Research Award, served as a board member of the National Accreditation Program for Breast Cancer Centers for the American College of Surgeons and was elected in 2020 as a fellow of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And she was selected by Forbes as one of the top 27 breast cancer oncologists in the United States. So that is a, a mouthful. And whether or not you um, got all that or not, she is well educated on this topic, and we are all in very, very good hands here. So let's sit back, have an open mind, and dive into breast cancer risk and genetics with Dr. Verid Stearns. Welcome, Dr. Stearns. I'm so happy to have you on the Health Trip Podcast today. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me. So I already did an opening um, talking about your training and your specialties and all the awards you've won, it was lengthy. It was extremely impressive. But just to share a little bit about yourself um, with the audience today, how did you become so focused on breast cancer research and um, your work? Thank you for your kind introduction. I've always wanted to be a physician. This is going back to early childhood, but Truthfully, I didn't really know what it entailed to become a physician. And as I engaged with my studies and then my clinical training, I really got more and more passionate about treating 
individuals with breast cancer. And this was for a couple of main reasons. One, uh, as at a time I was a young clinician, a young mother, and I was seeing a lot of young women with very complex breast cancer, and I wanted to do better for them. And it meant, number one, engaging in research, um, and number two, finding other ways to support them. And I was also working with some world-renowned physician scientists, and I knew that to truly make a difference, I had to engage both in clinical care mm -hmm. and educating the next generation of clinicians. It's an amazing journey that you've been on. And I've done quite a few podcasts on breast cancer risk and lifestyle interventions. Um, and it's it's really interesting when, when people think about breast cancer, especially the women I work with um, in my health coaching um, practice, they automatically think of two things. One is family history and the other is taking hormone replacement therapy. So I'm in that, that age, I'm in my fifties, I'm in menopause now, and I've elected to take hormone replacement therapy. I take the bioidentical version. My mother is a breast cancer survivor and um, she was very much against me taking hormones. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, are we right to think about these two scenarios, the family history and the hormones when it comes to breast cancer risk? Those are excellent questions, and we don't have all the answers, but I think our research will take us there in, in the near future. Uh, it's very important to individualize the decisions. So everyone is at a different risk, and everyone has different potential benefits from those interventions that we talked about. So the first thing that I hear from most patients with a newly diagnosed breast cancer is, why did I get that? I don't have a family history. I did everything right. Bottom line, where women growing older in Western society, those are the two major risks, being a woman and growing older. Um, and it may be exposures to not just hormones and other things that we think about, and I'll talk a little bit more detail about it, uh, but it could be other exposures and it could be exposures that we had as we were growing up or even in utero. So there's a lot that we need to learn about risk, uh, how to assess the risk, and how to reduce the risk. More specifically in terms of hormones, again, you need to make a decision why you're recommending hormones. Uh, if a woman is going through menopause and has significant symptoms and she cannot function, she cannot sleep, this is a woman would probably benefit from some treatment and there are a variety of different treatments and I'm not gonna go over those in detail today. Uh, but ideally, you want something that will be low dose for a short duration. Um, so the days of giving hormones for 20 years are over. Uh, most women will benefit from a course. It could be a few years, sometimes shorter, to get them through the transition. But as you mentioned, some women may be also at risk for breast cancer. So how do you reconcile that? Again, it just being in close touch with your physician, knowing if you have a first degree relative with breast cancer, what was the age of that person's cancer and how is best to do screening for you individually? That's really interesting because um, in my opening, I had said that we ancestrally, we didn't live this long. And so things are different now because we are expected to live these healthy vibrant, energized lives until well into our 80s, maybe even our 90s. And so we have a lot of um, biochemical reactions in our body that are declining. One, our hormones are all declining and our mitochondrial function is declining. We're going to get into that a little bit later as well. But you also mentioned, um, I know in, in some of your studies, you have done a lot of work on genetics and, and biomarkers and testing people to see what their risk is. Can you talk a bit about that, you know, in terms of what biomarkers are you looking at and what, how did genetics play a role in this? So there are different biomarkers that we look at depending on the clinical situation. So when I think of breast cancer, I think of uh, a few different scenarios. Uh, again, being a woman, growing older, what are the risk factors? You mentioned hormonal factors. So other changes uh, that we go through today that are different 
than how our ancestors used to live or that we're getting uh, pregnant a little bit later in life. Some women uh, don't have um, any children. We know that being pregnant and being pregnant earlier in life in your 20s uh, may be actually protective. There may be some differentiation in breast cancer cells that you don't see later in life and that actually mm. a risk factor. Um, are we have more uninterrupted periods that our ancestor did because we have fewer pregnancies and we don't breastfeed as long. So those are other factors that we look at. Uh, more specifically in terms of biomarkers uh, of risk, uh, I think that sometimes our ability to do some testing and our ability to use them uh, did not coincide. So we uh, are able to measure hormones, measure other biomarkers. We're, look, we're interested in inflammatory biomarkers, uh, biomarkers of um, inactivity or obesity, um, and also markers within the breast, breast density. We know that if you have dense breasts, that puts you at a higher risk for breast cancer. Well, what does that mean? Uh, are those the ductal cells? Are those the, the microenvironment or the stromal cells surrounding the ducts? We actually don't know the answer. So more research will be required to understand the risk factors and how to intervene to reduce the risk in women who may eventually develop breast cancer. Do you think it's a good idea for a young woman to do a deep dive into their genetics um, on the genes that are associated with breast cancer risk? And you know, what are the pros and cons to that? Because, you know, when we're looking at genetics and I do genetic testing, obviously not for breast cancer, but I do other lifestyle um, genetic testing. And it helps sometimes for the client to look at their results in black and white and then pivot their lifestyle in a direction that would benefit them long-term. But the negatives are obviously, if you see something, maybe you don't wanna see, and then you sort of have that anxiety or that panic. So what are your thoughts on, on early um, testing? I think that, yeah, ideally, if we were able to know exactly what's gonna to happen to one person, uh, we will be able to guide that individual in terms of interventions, whether those are lifestyle modification or medication to reduce uh, an event we're concerned about. The problem with most of the genetic markers, they may say that you are at a risk for breast cancer, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera, but they cannot always quantify um, what the risk is. So you don't know, uh, am I in the percent it's going to get that disease or am I in the percent who's not going to have this disease? So to some degree, it depends what your intervention is. If it's an intervention that's good for you anyway, for example, we're going to talk about lifestyle interventions. Yes, right. well, to eat heart healthy diet, to exercise regularly and do anything that reduces inflammation. It's good for our hearts. It's, it's good to prevent diabetes and cancer. So those are good things we want anybody to do regardless <clears throat> A genetic biomarker, but if you have a gene that, that you know predisposes you for cancer, possibly, uh, but uh, the risk of cancer is just slightly higher than an average person without that gene, uh, what might you do differently? We really don't want people to do radical interventions. For example, removing their breasts for mm -hmm. risk of a future breast cancer. Uh, but compared it to a woman who might have the BRCA gene, whose lifetime risk might be 60 or 80% of developing breast cancer. And if that woman has seen a relative go through breast cancer treatments or potentially die of the disease, this woman is more likely to do this more aggressive measure. So we have to put it in perspective. So the key is to understand what we're testing for and how we use the data. Right. And I was reading a study in um, Israel that the Ashkenazi Jewish women were all required to get tested or, or you know, requested to test for the breast cancer um, genetics. And do you think that we should be doing that, like in the United States? I mean, I work with a lot of Ashkenazi Jewish women. Yeah. So, um, uh, so this is a question that is being <coughs> there are. There are ongoing studies around the, the country and the world where people are being tested and the data are used to cancel them. I will tell you that my answer is a little bit more biased. And I think that because uh, the BRCA1 and 2 genes are more common in Ashkenazi, mm -hmm. which 
um, two and a half to four percent of Ashkenazi Jews will have this gene. Uh, I think that it's something that could be considered for testing. Now, if you have a family history, especially uh, individuals with younger age developing cancer, breast, ovarian, prostate, pancreatic melanoma, uh, those are individuals that I'll be more interested in uh, knowing their genetic makeup. Ideally, we would start testing an individual who had cancer uh, because if that individual have the gene, then other family members can be tested. And if that individual is uh, a gene negative, then there may be other risk factor for that uh, tumor. I think my main concern about testing though is that um, we need to have the infrastructure to support the individuals who are positive and guide them. Right. For example, if you're BRCA2 positive, you may be at risk for uh, breast cancer that, uh, that is estrogen receptor positive uh, or uh, ovarian cancer. And if you're male, male breast cancer, prostate cancer, or pancreatic cancer. Um, so we need to talk about how to screen and look for all those all this potential uh, tumor types. So um, it's not something that your average primary care doctor can right. do. And I fear that most of our cancer center and, and uh, genetic counselors are, are overwhelmed. So it's something that we need to deal with and find a way uh, to provide the infrastructure to support individuals. Now, I do want to mention something separate, and there are a lot of tests that people are doing. I'm not going to mention those in, by name, but they don't always have complete coverage of the genes. So, so I have people come to me, including relatives and friends, so I, I did this commercial test, and it says that I don't have uh, the BRCA gene, but it might not look at every potential mutation. Mm. Um, want people to keep that in mind. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's, that's good information. Before we move on from um, hormone replacement therapy, I had a couple questions. One is, are there, if there's a family history of breast cancer, and you're at an age where maybe you could be a candidate for hormone therapy, are there certain tests that you should take to find out uh, more information before you make that decision? Um, so uh, the, there aren't specific tests that I would order today. I would look at the uh, family history, what kind of cancer, what age did the first degree relative have the cancer, and then the woman is considering taking the hormones. Uh, what's the reason for taking the hormones? What different preparation she could mm -hmm. be considering um, and what type of monitoring needs to be uh, considered? Um, you know, obviously those are usually women in their 50s or late 40s. They will be doing regular screening images. Uh, is mammogram good enough? Do we need to add something else? And so on. Okay. And then what about women who are either going through breast cancer treatment currently or um, develop breast cancer? Can they take hormone replacement therapy as well during that time? Because there's a lot of women that complain about going through breast cancer treatment and having their quality of life really diminish in terms of you know, vaginal dryness, libido, uh, painful sex, energy levels, um, things of that nature. So again, it has to be individualized risk versus benefit discussion with individual women. Uh, if the woman has a high-risk hormone receptor positive breast cancer, meaning the risk of cancer coming back is high. I'm a little bit more reluctant to consider hormones, but if a risk of recurrence is very small, she has considerable interruption with quality of life, probably would start with, uh, and non-hormonal treatments have not helped, we can start with vaginal preparation of uh, estrogen that are low dose and right. most to benefit from that. So it's pretty unusual to require high doses of of estrogen. So uh, figuring out what the needs are and uh, what are the potential risks for the individuals. Uh, so again, I, it's hard for me to tell you what, what a thousand women can do, uh, but we can definitely guide individual women uh, and it doesn't have to be a no. Oh, that's great. So we started to talk about what kind of uh, lab markers you might be looking at. And you mentioned a few um, metabolic markers. And it is, we're in November, it's National Diabetes Month. So I've been doing a lot of, um, putting out a lot of content this month on diabetes and 
uh, lab tests to get. And it's very hard for people in the conventional medical um, healthcare model to go and get a deep dive into metabolic numbers. Like maybe they just get their fasting glucose, but they aren't looking at HbA1c or HOMA IR, things of that nature. How important is it to gather this information and how is that connected with breast cancer risk? We do know that women who have uh, diabetes are at higher, at higher risk for breast cancer. And we know that people who are overweight or obese are also at high risk for breast and other types of cancer. And many times being overweight or obese is also associated with diabetes, high blood pressure and other uh, risk factors such as high cholesterol and so on. So I would say that many of the patients we see will have uh, some metabolic assessment. So looking at lipid profiles, looking at fasting glucose, uh, hemoglobin A1C, uh, and so on. I would say that uh, only women who have more known cardiac risk factors in addition to, to breast cancer, we might be doing more comprehensive testing, whether it's more blood tests or uh, a CT of the coronaries to look at calcium deposits. And I tend to work closely with one of our prevention cardiologists. In those instances, we also have uh, a cohort study when we're looking at women who were diagnosed with breast cancer and the cardiometabolic profiles over time. Other things are bone health and uh, uh, many, many other factors. Speaking of bone health, do you recommend that women um, going through menopause or even earlier get a DEXA scan to sort of get a baseline of where they're at um, in terms of body composition and their bone density? And so a lot of this depends on uh, the na na national guidelines and um, insurance. Um, almost every woman at the age of 65 or older should have bone density tests and younger women uh, should be considered for bone density tests if they have other risk factors, for example, if they've taken steroids or if they had early menopause. Many of my patients have either premature menopause because of chemotherapy, and then many women start medications that could reduce uh, bone density, and uh, all those women will get a baseline bone density test. Uh, you also alluded to body composition, and yes, you can use the DEXA scans to measure that, but it's not something that's done routinely. Sometimes we'll look at those retrospectively for research purposes, but there's definitely potential to help guide people. Yeah, I'm all about gathering data. And I find that when I gather the more data for each of my clients, they really can look at the um, full spectrum of their health and, and make more educated and beneficial choices for themselves, for sure. Which leads me to the power study that you conducted on overweight women. I was hoping that you would be able to share some information about this study. I found it absolutely fascinating just from a health coaching perspective because you um, put in uh, a cell, uh, two, two groups, one group that were self-directed and one group of people who got to call in and work with, I, I believe a health coach, but I'll, I'm gonna hand that over to you. Yeah, and no, thank you for uh, the opportunity to talk about our studies. We actually have a series of studies now, and uh, I'll explain why we, we started this initial power study. So uh, it, in practice, what I've seen that many of my uh, patients with breast cancer, they've gone through multidisciplinary therapies and side effects, and they were struggling with uh, weight. Some of them gained weight due to the treatment and some uh, came in overweight uh, or obese, but uh, and going back to something you said earlier, it's kind of a wake-up call and they want to change their lifestyle. So it's a, a, a moment that, a teachable moment for all of us. Um, so many of my patients were really struggling. They were working hard, modifying their diet, um, exercising, and are just not able to lose the weight that they wanted. So at the same time, my colleagues in internal medicine have completed and published a study where they compared in-person coaching to remote coaching to just self-directed weight loss. And they've shown that in-person and remote coaching were pretty similar. So we bore their remote coaching algorithms, uh, which made it a little bit easier for people to take part. They had one time meeting with a coach uh, and then uh, we randomized the women, half the women, had 
regular follow-up with a coach and this was, was individualized based on their own weaknesses and strength when it comes to diet and physical activity and half just did their own thing. Um, and we've shown the women in the coached group, about half the women lost five or more percent of their weight, which was the, the end point of the study. And in the select directed arm, a very few women lost weight and wasn't um, sustained. Um, we actually since completed another study when we included women who also had sleep disturbance and mm -hmm. we first randomized women to uh, in sleep intervention. So an intervention to improve the sleep before randomizing them sorry, the randomization was the sleep intervention, but then everybody got the behavioral health coached weight loss. And um, we're in the process of putting the data together. But, uh, you know, let me also say that I still believe that there are women who work very hard um, and follow everything we tell them and have a hard time losing weight. And this is going back to my interest in biomarkers. What is it? Uh, that make these women different that are not able to lose weight with hard work. And, and those are some of the studies that we have ongoing now. Yeah, the, I have so many questions about all of this. We could talk about this for a day, but I'm going to start with what is the mechanism that's happening um, that causes overweight or obese women to be at a higher risk for developing breast cancer? We may not know all the reasons. Um, again, we talked about a few things, higher levels of inflammatory biomarkers, um, insulin resistance, um, and so on. There's also probably some storage of estrogen in fat cells and perhaps higher estrogen levels in women are uh, overweight or obese. So there are many potential mechanisms. And what about... Um... GLP-1 agonists like semaglutide, ozempic, you know, have you seen any correlation between having the overweight or obese women take these uh, medications or these peptides that can help reduce the risk of developing breast cancer? So those are definitely studies that are ongoing and we do have a very strong uh, group that helps individuals lose weight on our uh, general internal medicine side. And we're collaborating on some studies where women are not able to lose weight uh, on their own, despite helpful coaching, uh, will be receiving a medication in addition to the behavioral uh, coaching. And whether we can correlate it with other markers of risk or actually fewer breast cancer developing or, or recur, recurring, I don't know yet, but I believe we will. That's really interesting. I Because when I work with women who do all the right things, we get the labs done, we get the genetics, we look at micronutrient status in their cells, and they're doing everything, they're in, and they still can't lose the weight. And it's, exactly. you know, it's, um, it's disheartening. And it's, it's, it, it has an takes an emotional toll on these women. So I do think there's the lifestyle intervention component, and then there's obviously a medical side to it. I actually take GLP. I take semaglutide because even though I am a thin, uh, lean person, I have half a thyroid that has affected my lipids and my um, insulin resistance and all those biomarkers for myself. And it has helped me lower my blood glucose and my reverse my insulin resistance. And so I never thought I'd have to do that, you know, being someone who's fit and healthy and lives that lifestyle. But it's not just about women who are obese or overweight. I, I think that women who are also lean should get as much of a deep dive and look into these um, biomarkers as much as women who are overweight. Exactly. And we know that there's genetics or family history related to heart disease, yeah. diabetes as well, right? And um, again, I see patients all the time who say, I've done everything right. Why did I develop breast cancer? What's my risk of recurrence? Another biomarker that we didn't talk about, but we are very excited about and are investigated the microbiome. So mm. the gut or maybe even in, in the breast tissue may influence um, the risk of cancer and maybe uh, also changes in, in people based on their 
uh, weight gain or loss. So we're looking at in our weight loss studies at uh, the microbiome at baseline and then following a successful weight loss intervention. So that's something that, again, if we can show that people who successfully lost weight had a different microbiome at baseline uh, and were able to modify that, maybe there could be new, new medications that can be added. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, speaking of the microbiome, let's talk about nutrition. Is there an optimal anti-cancer diet out there? Well, what I usually tell my patients is that I support a heart healthy diet and there are several, right? And sometimes it's what right or wrong for an individual. Um, in general, a Mediterranean diet has been favored by many of my colleagues. And, um, it, you know, what is heart healthy diet? So good proteins, that's more fish or chicken, not as much red meat, uh, fruits, vegetables, um, little processed foods, and of course, in addition, regular physical activity. So I try not to be specific uh, or dogmatic about what an individual should do, but uh, lead them to several potential diets that could be helpful to them. Do you see a difference in breast cancer risk when it comes to vegans and non-vegans? Has that ever been looked at? Um, I don't know of data. Could be. I cannot speak to that. Uh, but generally, we, if a person is committed to become vegan, we just want to make sure they get good proteins and uh, maintain good body weight. We know that being underweight is not a good thing either. Yeah, absolutely. And what about alcohol use? You know, during the pandemic, many people turned to alcohol. We were stuck in our homes and um, some people have not been able to change that habit that they had during the pandemic to now a non-pandemic period of our lives. So what's that mechanism that increases breast cancer risk for women who are drinking alcohol? You're absolutely right. It's something that we've definitely observed uh, both in our patients and our team members, you know, it's yeah. Uh, something that uh, would be easy to, to add on and uh, take pleasure. We, the, the mechanism is not well understood. And also some of the studies associating alcohol intact and, uh, and cancer risk cannot completely differentiate the role of alcohol from other potential factors. And uh, I'm sensitive to that because uh, it's very hard for me to tell someone who been diagnosed with breast cancer and has a very good prognosis not to drink alcohol at all. And I'll tell you, there are some people who said that. And again, what I'm telling you now is my opinion and uh, what we as, as a group have uh, decided to tell our patients. So I think that probably having a couple of alcoholic beverages a week is uh, a, good, a good number. I would try not to do more than, than two, let's say five ounce um, wine glasses a week. Um, and the mechanism, again, is not known. And when I refer to studies that make in the association, a lot of them looked at very high alcohol intake and people who have very high alcohol intake also usually don't have very healthy diets and may not be exercising regularly. So yeah. uh, it's difficult for me to tell a person who has a very, very good uh, lifestyle otherwise not to drink alcohol at all. So again, some alcohol in moderation is of interest. One of my colleagues is doing fascinating laboratory-based research to try and figure out whether there are what we call epigenetic modifications. Those are changes around the DNA, not within the DNA, mm -hmm. are associated with alcohol use. And I'm excited to hear more about that from her. Mm, that's, oh yeah, that'll be an interesting study. Um, let's go back to sleep. Um, and then we're going to talk about stress. Sleep and stress to me are two huge factors that if people can't nail those, if people cannot get that restorative sleep, especially as they're aging, and if they can't reduce their chronic stress, those two play huge roles in chronic disease. And I know you're doing this study on sleep or you've already done the study, um, 
but what are some of, what's that mechanism going on between poor sleep and increasing your risk for breast cancer or other cancers as well? And what do you tell your patients to do in terms of sleep hygiene? What are some of your, your favorite tips? So poor sleep definitely associated with less physical activity during the day. It's kind of a vicious cycle. You don't sleep well, and then you're tired, so you don't want to exercise. Um, associated with more feeling of achiness, uh, sometimes mood disturbance, you're just not feel like doing as many things. And that, those are all associated with high or due to high inflammatory markers. So anything that you can help a person to sleep better, uh, they'll have better days and better quality of life. And they're more likely to be active and to pursue other activities uh, of wellness. We do recommend starting with sleep hygiene, which is uh, try to sleep in a in a in a room with very few stimulatory uh, effects, so no lights or uh, electronics. Try not to use any of electronics in an hour before going to bed. No TVs in the bedroom, ideally. Um, if you can do a quiet activity, a meditation, uh, anything that would calm you down before going to sleep, those are helpful interventions. And then of course, people who have a harder time over time can talk to their physicians. We usually would start with something that has low potential for risk, such as melatonin, and go from there. Do you know about the Uller pad? No, tell me about it. Oh, this is a great Great invention, especially for menopausal women who have hot flashes, but it's this pad that you put on your mattress under your sheet and you can control the temperature. So there's been a lot of uh, science behind 65 degrees as being an optimal yeah nice temperature to sleep in. And you can actually set this mattress pad to any, I set it to 64 because I like it really cold. Um, and if you have a partner, their side of the bed is controlled separately from your side. So they don't have to be the same, but this has just been a game changer in terms of sleep for myself. Uh, and I've turned a lot of my menopausal um, clients onto it. So it's called the Uller pad and it's, it's phenomenal. That's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. What about um, chronic stress? How is that correlated with uh, breast cancer risk? So again, I, I, I do believe that chronic, uh, chronic stress is associated with higher inflammatory biomarkers and high inflammation is a risk factor for breast and other tumor types. So if people can have better balance in their lives and uh, create activities that reduce the stress, they can incorporate mindfulness or meditation or uh, anything else that can reduce inflammation and then exercise regularly. Those are very beneficial. Of course, if it's figure out what's the ma major stressor, and that's something you can change, go for it. Yeah. You know, everything we've talked about comes down to this chronic inflammation in our bodies. And it's not just about breast cancer, but it's our risk for all different types of cancers as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what about when women are going through breast cancer treatment? How do you keep them motivated to continue eating right, exercising, meditating, like doing all the things they should be doing if they didn't have breast cancer, but now they have it and they have this other layer of, you know, um, stress on their body physically and emotionally. Um, so what's that conversation look like? So what I try to do is sometimes the very first visit is overwhelming, talking about prognosis and treatments and uh, what we have to get them through, but I make sure to note of some of the other factors that we can work on if I'm not, uh, I'm not able to get to it in the first visit. And then as we start a treatment and we get to know the patients and the patient gets to know our team members, uh, we're trying to bring in slowly some of those interventions. So um, we, we, we deployed a behavioral um, battery questionnaire where we take a deep dive into more specific questions. I learn a lot from that, for example, on not just number of fruit and vegetable a person is eating, but the time of uh, the time they eat food or binge eating or um, fast food. And so we, we, we take in a deep dive into more specific information. 
Um, and then we created both resource sheets and uh, if possible, clinical studies to try and address those needs. So we will send them to local um, nutritionists or other coaches that can help based on their needs uh, over time. We've also have partnership with local um, gyms and uh, have provided some yoga online and, and some other benefits. Integrative medicine interventions are very helpful as well. Uh, so we do try to bring in uh, all of these to the individuals uh, over time and support them. That's, that's great. What are your thoughts on fasting and reducing someone's risk of breast cancer? So when you said fasting, you're talking about intermittent fasting? Yeah. 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 And there's all different types. You know, some people do yeah. a simple overnight fast and I, I yeah. see a lot of women doing much more extended fast that I don't really subscribe to, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, based on, on the, the scientific data that I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, I, I think that there, there could be potential benefit, but it depends on type of the fasting and uh, the baseline. And, um, there's a lot of hype about intermittent fasting. And I think just in general, it's good to have, you know, a, a start time and an end time for mm -hmm. late, late night eating is not a good thing. It also depends on what you eat, but some people already have relatively healthy uh, eating behaviors and um, intermediate fasting may not be helpful to them. To other people, intermediate fasting is just another way of calorie restriction. So uh, this is why I think that those approaches have to be individualized. Now, hmm. data about uh, restricting uh, or doing some fasting related to some of, some of our treatments. And in fact, one of my colleagues is going to start a study with women starting chemotherapy will have, will work with, uh, with a coach, a nutritionist, and um, have uh, a fasting protocol before and up 24 hours after chemotherapy to see hmm. if reduce the side effects and if they're able to get their treatment uh, more regularly. And there's some really interesting data behind that as well. Oh, that is really interesting. What about the use of red light therapy? Has that, have you seen any research on that in terms of uh, reducing someone's breast cancer risk or uh, helping while they're in chemotherapy in terms of reducing uh, side effects? I'm not familiar with the data. Hmm, that'd be interesting to find that out. I also want to talk about telomeres with you. This is something that my community certainly does not know enough about. Um, I'm certainly no expert on telomeres, but I do know as we age, our tele so our telomeres are on the ends of our DNA. And I guess you, you can compare them to the shoelace with that little plastic cap on the end that analogy is always used and how that little plastic cap starts to fray. And then you see the threads sort of like fray a little bit out. And so um, tell us more about telomeres, why it's important that maybe we get tested because you can genetically, you can test and see where your telomeres are as you age. And why is that important in terms of breast cancer risk? So a very nice uh, description. And yes, uh, as we age, our telomeres are getting shorter. And there's also data showing that people who develop cancer, the telomeres are shorter than other people their age. Um, there, the question is how to test and who to test and what do you do with the data? Um, and uh, actually in the power study that I talked to you about, we did measure the telomeres uh, at the beginning of the intervention and six months later with um, uh, a com with commercially available uh, test that um, uh, was developed actually at uh, Johns Hopkins by, by one of my colleagues and her team. And um, I was hoping to see that the, the benefits of weight loss will also translate to lengthening the telomeres. Now, it was a small study, and we're not able to show that, but it's definitely something that I'd be interested in seeing more research on. So, you know, again, um, if, are there interventions that can help lengthen the telomeres, especially if you're diagnosed with cancer and your telomeres may be a little bit shorter than another individual your age? Hmm. Okay. So 
How important is it that we try to live our lifestyle toxin-free? We have toxins coming in from our water, from our air, on, on our food, our skincare, our hair care. Is that a conversation that you also have with your patients in terms of you know, trying to clean things up a bit? That's a, a very difficult um, question to answer because you know the, the data that I try to share with my patients come from our scientific literature and I don't always have information about everything that we're exposed to, but I think more generally trying to have whole foods and not uh, processed foods and um, trying to avoid uh, exposure to multiple toxin is probably a good thing all, all around, right? Um, Put your sunscreen on and uh, don't smoke. I mean, you know, there are things that we absolutely know are associated with cancer, and there are some things we know less about. So I don't, I don't want people to remove everything uh, that they might enjoy out of their life, but try to again uh, really look at the scientific data, talk to their doctors or coaches and other people who can help them live the best possible life. Yeah, one of the things I always recommend is, you know, tr where you can control it, do your best. So in your home, right, or in your office. But when you go on vacation or you go to a um, a work event, you can't control it. But if you can get a nice baseline and a nice foundation in your home for your family, that's always a, a great place to start. Absolutely. What are, are there any myths that you've come across? surrounding breast cancer that our audience should know about? I, I don't know if there are any specific myths, but again, some of the things we already talked about is that, well, I don't have a family history, so I'm not at risk for breast cancer. Again, being a woman growing older in Western society, you're at risk. Um, and then just that uh, we are, very comfortable with taking pills to fix things, but sometimes it's the hard work, the lifestyle modification that. Absolutely. So uh, again, when I see individuals with newly diagnosed, diagnosed cancer, uh, it's a teachable moment. And it's, you know, it's, we develop a relationship and we try to help them live their best uh, possible lives. And ideally every, every, anything you have control over uh, that you can do on your own and doesn't require another pill is, is going to be beneficial. Yeah. What about mammograms? Um, how important is it for women to have a mammogram every year? I was reading a report in England, how they're trying to change the um, requirement to every other year, if there's no family history. So what are your thoughts on that? It's still the best imaging study we have today to look for early breast cancer. And um, the data come from multiple sources and studies were done over many years in many countries. And for the most part, a woman who's not at the high, at the high risk with the factors we know about uh, probably can have a mammogram every other year starting the age of 50 or so. And that's okay. Uh, the challenge is that um, we're not very good always at assessing risk and quantifying it. So there are models that you can look at family history and hormonal history and come up with a lifetime risk or breast cancer that can be used. But again, it's not something that gynecologists or primary care doctors are able to do. So in an ideal world, we will um, provide those tools and assessments and then decide how often one should have a mammogram, but we're not there yet. So I think this is why um, in the U.S. we're, for the most part, recommending a mammogram every year and in an earlier age. Yeah. What about the um, automated breast ultrasound, the ABUS, for women who have dense breast tissue? How important is that? Because I have dense breast tissue and I was never told about getting this additional test done until just this, this year. So uh, only in recent um, years and uh, probably not in all states yet, we've been hearing more about the breast density as part of the mammogram report. So when the breast imager is looking at your mammogram, um, they will note whether the breasts look dense. And if so, um, it is a hint for the primary care doctor or gynecologist to consider another test. And 
uh, either uh, an ultrasound can be done sometime at MRI. Uh, and it, it is very challenging because um, the, the ultrasound that's recommended is an entire breast ultrasound usually be done by a physician, not necessarily a tech, um, which is what usually be done if you have a mass. You, if you have a mass in the breast, a technician can do an ultrasound of the area, but to do the ultrasound of the entire breast is a little bit more difficult, not always available. Um, so it's just a challenge to our healthcare system, but I think it is something that needs to be incorporated more so. Yeah. So before we end our podcast, what are three things that you would suggest women can do now today at home to help either educate themselves about their breast cancer risk or move forward in preventative measures? I think we probably covered most of it. I think the first thing is to know your history, your family history, and to talk to your uh, doctor or coach about ways you can intervene and be in control to try and reduce your risk. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is to, to know what are the screening approaches that right for you. And again, what medical interventions or testing could be appropriate for you to diagnose a cancer early, such as a mammogram, such as a colonoscopy, skin check, and so on. Um, and then the third is to just remember uh, Heart healthy diet and regular physical activity help reduce many illnesses and many types of cancer. Uh, as we look at the number of diseases that uh, people are um, at risk for today and cancers, many of them are influenced by uh, the type of diets that we've been exposed to and being overweight or obese. Yeah, all great points. Thank you so much for your time and um, attention to this topic. And we're very lucky to have people like you in the world that is researching and sharing all of this expert data on how we can prevent and reduce our risk for breast cancer. So thank you again for joining us, Dr. Stearns. And I will put in the show notes for everybody where to find you, find your team, find your clinic so that they can look at all of your resources and contact you if they want. Thank you so much uh, as well for coaching many individuals and bringing the educational benefits to all. Oh, well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you everyone for listening in and um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.